0: Let us by all means pray for one another. It is perhaps the only form of work for reunion which never does anything but good. This is Pints with Jack, season seven, episode three. Dear Mrs. Shelburne, Letters to an American Lady, part one. Dear Pints with Jack listeners, thank you for downloading this episode of Pints with Jack, the podcast where we discuss the work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading some of Lewis's letters, which have been brought together in several different collections. In season seven, we're going to read the correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne, found in Letters to an American Lady, as well as Letters to Children, and his exchange of Latin letters with St. Giovanni Calabria. And today's opening quotation is found in the early pages of our first book, Letters to an American Lady, when Lewis is speaking about ecumenism. And in today's episode, we're going to begin reading this collection and hear Jack's thoughts about First Editions, Angels, and Conversion. We're going to be covering approximately a two or three year period, looking at the letters between the 26th of October, 1950, ending with 1953. All blessings, Andrew, Matt, and David. Good morning, gentlemen. How are things?
1: (laughs) Oh... It feels good to be back into our uh, our first official episode on the material. We did a welcome one, but we're finally diving into the book. It's fun to days leading up to this, prep for this, read it, reread it, kind of process, think about it. So I'm excited. I'm excited for this, I guess you want to call it different season format because it's incredibly different than what we've done by going through other books, not chapter by chapter or two chapters by two chapters. And I'll say it's kind of interesting, David, when you pointed out. I don't think this like dawned on me. I'm just reading through the letters straight. That we're we're covering a three year period. I mean, it felt quick. You're reading 25 pages essentially of letters uh, to get to this point. And I don't. I, I never really actually read the dates before reading the letters. I just read the letters. It's it's, it's just hard to think that's that's three year period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyways, how are you guys?
2: Well, I'm doing really well. I'm really looking forward to diving into this uh, into this book in particular. As I've mentioned before, this was the book that Phil Keggy lent me. And this was the book that began the process of saving my intellectual life. This is the first non-Narnia Lewis that I ever read. Mm-hmm. And I was just captivated by him instantly. And that just started as I've you know witnessed in so many others, this kind of hunger for more Lewis. And uh, desire to, to read and read everything that we could. Um, we're addressing you before C.S. Lewis Reading Day, but we, uh, or we're recording before re- Reading Day, but, uh, but this will, of course, be released after Reading Day, so we're looking forward to great participation. I've also been doing a huge amount of traveling, so this week is vacation week after a week in Romania with the C.S. Lewis and Kindred Spirits Conference, which was fantastic. Ross Wilson from Belfast, uh, Melody Green, and uh, uh, Kirsten Jeffrey Johnson, Joe Ricky, um, Alan Snyder, uh, wonderful uh, uh, cast of characters, plus uh, an incredible experience in Romania. So,
0: I too am ready to get hunkered down and into the new season. And you also saw Sarah. How do you pronounce her last name? Sarah Waters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a long day on the bus
2: um, traveling all over Romania and Moldova uh, to see the painted monasteries, these monasteries with icons on the outside and, and beautiful iconography inside. And so that was one of our conversations during our many hours on the bus. Um, in fact, when I said waters, she didn't turn her head three or four seats ahead of me. But when I said waters, she looked right around. So... <laughs> Uh, it was great to get some time with her as well, and, uh, and, and wonderful to be back
0: and learn how to pronounce the King's English. Exactly. This is why the English travel, just to make sure everybody's speaking properly. <laughs> <laughs> well, for myself, I've actually got a boys weekend coming up, because hey. my wife and daughter are going to Kentucky, which means Alexander and I have the house to ourselves. We are going to get some steaks, get some scotch. And, uh, yeah, we're going to party. It's going to be a fun weekend. <laughs> Stay or we talk about girls. Probably
2: not so much scotch for him.
0: Yeah, <laughs> okay. Just a thimble, you know, just if a, he's teething, just as they fa- would
1: say in Meet the Falkers.
0: Just yeah, a thimble. There we go.
2: <laughs> Don't worry. I won't give him the good stuff yet.
1: <laughs> okay, good.
2: Uh, listeners, he was just kidding. Don't call CPS. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: was I. <laughs> Well, we are recording first thing in the morning, so I said we're kind of reviving Andrew's The Caffeinated Lamp Post Society, so I'm expecting fairly few alcoholic beverages being mentioned today, but what is everyone drinking? Well,
1: one, I feel like we shouldn't, in hindsight, have mentioned that because there is going to be an episode or two where we drink alcohol and people are going to be like, it's 9 a.m. What are they doing? (laughs)
2: We should call it the I think the Caffeinated Lamppost Society may still be meeting in Houston. So maybe the Caffeinated Correspondent Society. Okay. And uh, that's okay. If we go to the evening, it could be the Carbonated Correspondent Society. <laughs>
1: well, I'm I'm a, a classic millennial. This is gonna put me in my demographic group. I am drinking a Celsius.
0: <laughs> okay. Millennials <laughs> are the worst. Andrew, what the are you fact drinking?
1: That- <laughs> The fact that you guys didn't make a comment right. probably means almost like proves my point. Everyone yeah. in their twenties or thirties, like Celsius became the the person that goes to Pilates and rides a Peloton and has the loot. <laughs> like it's like you 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 drink and I have a Peloton. <laughs> you know, I yep. fit the stereotypes so much. There you go.
0: <laughs> like I've said many times, millennials are the worst. Andrew, what are you drinking? <laughs>
2: Out of my Starbucks Oxford mug, I'm having Taste of San Antonio, uh, that wonderful coffee from H-E-B with a little cinnamon. Um, it's the, the kind that that, um, that Priscilla Tolkien enjoyed from time to time before she passed away. And I will note that while I was in Romania, I got to spend some time with Ross Wilson, the amazing Belfast sculptor. Um, he did the wardrobe called The, the, uh, the Searcher. Um, a mm. wardrobe sculpture in 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 CS Lewis Square. He's done a portrait for King Charles and has hung out with the King a number of times and and told him about Lewis. And at his urging, at Ross's urging, um, uh, the King went out and got all the rest of the CS Lewis he hadn't read. Uh, this was, I think, a few years ago while he was still the Prince of Wales. But um, so I brought a bunch of PG tips with me on the Romania trip and kept Ross well supplied. And so, <laughs> but today, coffee and for you, David.
0: Uh, I am going with a coffee as well. I'm doing the the milky coffee, which is basically like hot milk with some coffee instant mm-hmm. mixed in just to give it a little bit of a kick. Because uh, okay. uh, I don't like anything too strong Right, first thing in the morning. I, I need a gentle introduction to the day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're, today we're going to be toasting the top tier Patreon supporter, Alex Hale. And I wanted to read a just quick little quote beforehand that will apply to the toast. This is from one of the letters this week. We are told that even those tribulations which fall upon us by necessity, if embraced for Christ's sake, become as meritorious as voluntary sufferings, and every Mm. missed meal can be converted into a fast if taken in the right way. So Alex, to that, any tribulations that fall your way in life, may you offer them up uh, in a redemptive way voluntarily for Christ, and may they be converted into a fast. Cheers.
2: Cheers. Cheers. I was chuckling when we found that quote. That's the quote that I refer to all the time. A missed meal can be taken as a voluntary fast. And uh, part of the joy of revisiting these this old friend is realizing where I first came across some of these ideas that, uh,
0: that have been traveling with me for 30 years now. Mm. Yeah, it's true for me as well. There's a lot of Lewisisms that I have in my head. And if I can't identify where they're from, nine times out of 10, they're from a letter. Speaking of letters,
2: it's time for my flex. (laughs) The brand new and expanded letters of J.R.R. Tolkien just arrived at my porch uh, earlier this week. The Humphrey Carpenter first did it years and years ago, but he left out a number of letters because the publisher thought the book would be too long and too expensive. And so now there are 150 new letters from Tolkien that have never been published before. And I think some of the old letters uh, may have been expanded some. So the revised and expanded uh, letters of J.R. Tolkien, put it on your Christmas list if you you still need one.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Well, let's get stuck into the book. And at the start of Letters to an American Lady, there's a preface written by Clyde S. Kilby. So perhaps it might be an idea to explain to our listeners who that was. Andrew, you're up. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, professor Kilby, as he's still affectionately known um, at, the, uh, at Wheaton College, was a Wheaton College English professor. And he had a profound interest in the Inklings. Um, his dates were 1902 to 1986. He is most perennially known for his scholarship on the Inklings and his visionary efforts in founding the Marion E. Wade Center. Uh, he and Marge Mead have been colleagues for many years. Um, and he was a professor there who taught English. Um, he also edited Christian Reflections, Brothers and Friends, wrote a book called Images of Salvation, and of course edited the book that we're reading now. And so uh, so much of America's interest and passion in Lewis and Chesterton and Barfield and, and McDonald come, you know, come as a result of the great work of Clyde S. Kilby.
0: Thanks. Did you guys have anything you wanted to say about the preface before we jump into the letters themselves?
1: Don't pull a Matthew and consider <laughs> skipping it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You have been warned.
0: Why shouldn't they skip the preface? Matthew? <laughs> Why should you never skip prefaces to Lewis books? Because if you do- Because we want to be good readers.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say, David Bates will um, call you out for it. So uh, I feel like that was justification enough, but it's helpful because it gives some context to the letters uh, and, and particularly what season of life was Lewis in. He has a very vast life and he's written letters all over. So he was 51 years old, published 20 books. So, I mean, he's already written Problem of Pain, Miracles, Tape Letters, Ransom Trilogy. Uh, and he publishes A Lion, to Witch, and the Wardrobe* that year. So, a ton of theology stuff has already been written. Uh, the Narnia series is starting to begin at this point. Uh, he says that these letters are going to cover major events of his life after 1950. So, switch to Cambridge, marriage to Joy, her death, uh, which I'm quite intrigued with because I, I don't think it really dawned to me what these events are going to cover. I've only I've only I'm reading this as we go, so I only read the first fourth for today's one. Uh, So I'm I'm excited. We also find out about his correspondent, Mary, which is helpful contextual information. She requested that her identity be withheld when the letters were donated to the Wade and the book printed. So she was widow four years, Lewis's senior, converted to Catholicism, writer of articles, poems, and stories, and was described as very charming, gracious. A southern aristocratic lady <laughs> who loves to talk and speaks well, and it's so fitting knowing that that sentence as you as you read the actual stuff. I don't know how to explain. Well, we'll circle back to this. Like my commentary of like her boldness kind of throughout all of this. Uh, I guess that that
2: fits. Yeah. Well, and the, Walter Hooper uh, years after Mrs. Shelburne died. Um, mentioned that he visited her in Washington DC and she had pictures of Saints all over the house and was very happy to take visitors but she um, would kind of shake her little offering box um, with <laughs> when visitors would come to talk to her especially about Lewis and so uh, she she was um, happy to to receive a little sustaining contribution um, from those who came to visit her Another thing that the preface points out, that Kilby points out, is that the letters kind of accentuate rather than change what we know about Lewis um, in general. It covers themes like his antipathy towards journalism. He, um, I think he says somewhere, um, uh, I don't read the papers. I make it a policy. If somebody lies to me once, never to give them another opportunity. <laughs> he talks about advertising. <laughs> he talks about snobbery, psychoanalysis, and the false and the patent and the multitude of petty or insidious practices that sap personal and national freedom. He's pretty, he's pretty open with her. And a lot mm-hmm. of his letters, I'm sure that he had no idea that they would ever be published or ever be treasured, but they are treasures and they show us a lot about him.
1: They were revealing so far.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's fairly biographical uh, or autobiographical. He wrote responses um, to everyone who ever uh, wrote to him. And in fact, uh, this right as the correspondence begins, um, a few months before his correspondence with Mary Willis Shelburne begins, Chad Walsh has encouraged Joy Davidman that Lewis answers every letter that he receives and encouraged uh, Joy and Bill Gresham to write to Lewis. And so their correspondence has just begun as these letters to an American lady um, happen. Mm. I think Kilby, uh, I loved his distinction. He says, Lewis hews the sharpest of lines between the utter and continuous practice of Christianity and our feelings. We are to do and let our feelings be as they may. And so that's, we've talked about that here that Lewis connected a a line of thinking with a line of action.
0: And Kilby points that out as well. And as I've heard the various interviews with Dr. Diana Glyer about her newly released book about uh, Warney's letters, uh, it really does strike me as I was reading this preface that letter writing is a lost art. It's just something that we don't do these days. And in future, when we're digging out biographical details of writers, more often than not, we're going to be snooping in on their email and instant messages. And I don't think it's going to be anywhere <laughs> near as good as this. Matt is holding up actual physical letters.
1: Yeah, stationary. (laughs) uh, Now that I am doing a long distance relationship, I uh, receive and send love letters. So I'm now getting into the habit of writing letters. And it's nice when you just have it next to you. I think the key is, the activation energy of writing a letter is far higher than other stuff. You have to sit down mm-hmm. and really do it. And so if you just have it next to whatever seat you might have that you do prayer or silent time or solitude, you just kind of like, oh, you know what? I'm feeling kind of moved right now. And you pull it over and you just start writing stuff. And yeah, it's nice. Well, I have to, to say,
0: I feel rather hurt the fact that you have never sent me a letter, <laughs> um, <laughs> love or otherwise. A love letter, yeah. But now I know you have stationery. the excuses are gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we'll be expecting
2: our Christmas letters soon. That backfired. The only other thing that I'd point out from the preface, and I think that it's wise to keep in mind throughout, and I'll try to kind of interject during this um, this season. It's good to know the historical context of what Lewis was was going through. So the first letter comes in 1950, or the first reply, the first letter to her that we have from Lewis is in 1950. Um, and then the next letter is in late in 1952. And so it's 1953 all the way up until, um, oh my goodness. Uh, he's writing her, um, a few months before his death. The last letter is, uh, 30 August of 63. Contextually, Lewis is, uh, in 1950, Mrs. Moore is starting to get so um, ill in health and of mind and body that she's about to be put in a nursing home and she'll die soon. So it's kind of the end of the Minto era. The Inklings have just stopped meeting. Uh, Lewis is about to lose a third professorship. Um, Warney is doing some binge drinking. Uh, and as I mentioned, Joy Davidman has begun corresponding with him. Uh, 1950 finds him in the middle of writing the Narnia's, the Narnia's are 1948 to 1953. So the bulk of Lewis's letters to her begin after he has finished writing the Chronicles of Narnia. He's also finishing surprised by joy. Um, by the time he picks up correspondence in 53, joy Davidman has already had her long visit in the fall of 52 to Lewis. And so that relationship is well underway. A um, couple of years into the correspondence, he gets the invitation to a professorship at at Cambridge, which he uh, eventually accepts. Um, and so those are some of the things that are going on in Lewis's life. So Inklings and Mrs. Moore are out of the picture. Joy Davidman is, on, is in the picture uh, and Cambridge and some of his later writings are what's happening as he's corresponding with her. And you hear a few themes uh, of that in the letters.
0: Mm. And there were a few different ways that, we could have moved through these letters, uh, just picking out one or two things and just diving deep into those particular topics. But what I wanted to do was sort of steer a course through them, not discussing every single one, although I do have to admit it's kind of difficult not to discuss <laughs> each one because there's usually gold in each, uh, but at least yes. to sketch their relationship uh, as, it, as it progresses. Today's episode is called Dear Mrs. Shelburne. That's going to change next episode. Uh, but I wanted to sketch their relationship developing and the, the conversations that they have as they go through, some of them minor and some of them more major. And we're going to get to the major ones, I would say, particularly towards the end. But let, let's, let's begin at the very first letter. So yes, this is in 1950, just at the end of the year. And the thing I just wanted to note is that we find Lewis's trademark humor. He writes, thank mm. you for your most kind and encouraging letter. I should need to be either of angelic humility or diabolic pride not to be pleased with all the things you say about my books. Yeah. And at this point, he's written about
2: 20 books. I think the most recent, let's see, probably Miracles comes out in, in 47. Um, and so uh, later on, he says to her, oh, you have all the ones that um, that would matter to you, which means probably she hasn't read... Uh, any of the literary criticism stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and in, even in this first, at the first letter, there's a generosity and a humility and a friendliness. Um, and that characterized all of Lewis's letters, whether they stretched into decades-long correspondence or not.
0: Yeah. And as you mentioned, the next letter comes about two years later. And in the second letter, we discover that Mary has recently converted from the Episcopal Church to Catholicism. And I want to just pause here for a moment because Lewis is as gracious as always. He writes, it Mm -hmm. is a little difficult to explain how I feel that though you have taken away, which is not for me, I nevertheless can congratulate you. I suppose because your faith and joy are so obviously increased. Naturally, I do not draw from that the same conclusions as you, but there is no need for us to start a controversial correspondence. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: I've always been under the view that I don't buy he would have converted to Catholicism. I know there's there's some that will try to make that claim. Just from the stuff I've read, I'm convinced he he wouldn't have if time went on, because some tried to or he was so close. I don't know. It's kind of just feels like that affirms that even further for me.
2: Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> oh,
1: you think he would have? I
2: think that some of the changes in the 60s in the in the Episcopal mm-hmm. Church um may have like Walter Hooper driven him
0: from Anglicanism uh, to um, to Roman Catholicism or possibly Eastern Orthodoxy. My hot take, my controversial hot take is I think I'd actually put Eastern Orthodoxy before Catholicism on his uh, conversion yeah. journey.
2: Ah, you know,
1: that would be a good fight for a commoner. (laughs) I love how the the two Catholics on the podcast are arguing he wouldn't have converted to our church. And the one non-Catholic is arguing he would have, like, this is why this dynamic works. None of us have, like, an ego about the the different denominations.
0: Well, well, that actually takes us very nicely into the next thing that he says, because he goes on to say that he regards him themselves, so himself and Mary, as being, quote, very near to one another, but not because I am at all on the Romewood frontier of my own communion. So he's not Anglo-Catholic, mm-hmm. as people often describe him as that. And it's, it, it's not quite right. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's it's not right. No,
2: and he's, and he says about his piety, I am neither very high nor very low nor very
0: anything else. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Which I actually also disagree with. I don't, I don't think that's fair either. But um, I, I do think <laughs> it's, it's not quite as simple as everybody wants to make it. But he goes on to say, I believe that in the present divided state of Christendom, those who are at the heart of each division are all closer to one another than those who are at the fringes. And he offers a very similar kind of argument to that in the preface to mere Christianity. Here, actually, he goes on, he pushes it even further saying, quote, how much more one has in common with a real Jew or Muslim than with a wretched, liberalizing, (laughs) Andrew, I can never remember how to pronounce this. How would you pronounce that? Occidentalized. Occidentalized. Yeah, specimen of the same categories. So he views something, when you're at the heart of something, you're actually closer to other people. Uh Um, It's almost like... What he says about Owen Barfield when you when you care and friendship when you care about the same things, even if you don't necessarily reach the same conclusions, there's a closeness Mm -hmm. that comes from that. Well, and he does say in the
2: preface to *Mere Christianity*, it is when somebody is nearest the center of their own communion that they are more similar to those others. It is at at her center where her truest children dwell that something or a someone speaks with the same voice. Um, and that seems to be what he's enunciating here. Would you say this would apply to, I
1: can't remember where I heard this, if this was a Lewis a Chesterton or something completely unrelated, but th- this would almost apply to a a real atheist as well. And what I mean is, and when the word real, I guess I'm using here, someone who's authentically seeking truth. Now, in this case, they've come to a very different conclusion, but just the mere act of seeking truth in an open yep. Objective way, authentically, genuinely makes you close to someone else who's doing that same thing.
0: Sure, Andrew was recently on the Lamp Post Listener, and he quoted
2: this. (laughs) Oh yeah, tell me. Yes, Uh, when an atheist um, stops going to church, um, you know, for appearances' sake, uh, he's actually closer to the spirit of truth. Yeah. When he stops, you know, you know, and I'm making a mush of it. um, No, it's making uh, sense. When he stops yeah but when he stops pretending to be a Christian mm-hmm. and really you know embraces his uh, his his seeking, by the way, this idea of um the, where her truest children dwell that something speaks with the same voice, Lewis probably writes that after this letter because mere Christianity comes out in fifty two and that comes from the preface to mere christianity. so um so it's this is probably the formation stage of that idea. um and it's also before I think, yeah, it's it's. I'm I'm quite certain it's before um, uh, we meet Emmeth in the last battle, who seems to embody mm-hmm. some of these um, these similar ideas. So a lot of this stuff is cooking with Lewis at this point in the, in 1950. I love yeah. that term, and, and this cooking. is the
0: exact reason why I think going through his letters is so important because you start seeing these ideas begin to form before we get the more published, polished, refined, thought through ideas from his books. And actually, yep.
1: that could be a helpful thing if you could do Andrew in here, just because to, to the average person, which I put myself in that category, <laughs> if if you're uh, reading a letter, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if a comment that's being made here is before the book that it might have been fully developed in or not. So if there's like some key yep. point that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and it's like this was actually before he wrote this book, like oh, that's actually helpful yep. to know.
2: Well one of the things that'll also be really helpful and I'm sure David will include a link um Joel Hecks uh, amazing work in Chronologically Lewis it's a 1200 page plus page pdf of every date in Lewis's life having read all the biographies and letters and everything else Um, And he's constantly revising it. Joel Heck has mapped out as many of the days of Lewis's life and what he was doing as he can. So if you want context, that's the good deep dive. And it's um, fairly easy to find. And yeah, I'm happy to do that. Another thing, listeners, is that when Lewis writes about something in a letter, and we'll see it in today's episode, he actually repeats the same advice to Mary Willis um, Shelburne. between one letter and another. And so an idea in a poem and an essay and a book and a number of letters are often kind of cooking at the same time. And when you bring some of those sources together chronologically, you can really see the development of Lewis's thought in a real organic way. So that's why I'm so thrilled we're diving into letters this this week. And also so thrilled that we have a C.S. Lewis timeline um, on, uh, uh, of course, on our website. So Um, So go to the Pints for Jack website for that, and that'll really help.
0: Yeah, it's pintsforjack.com slash Lewis. And uh, Joel's stuff is fantastic, but also kind of dense. So we give a slightly simplified timeline. (laughs) which should hopefully make understanding all this stuff a little bit easier, putting it in context.
2: Another thing I'll be doing, listeners, is the letters are excerpted in places. And so in your copy of Letters to an American Lady, you'll see some ellipses. Um, usually those are family comments. Lewis is commenting on uh, Mary Willis's uh, mentioning her re- difficult relationship with her daughter or her granddaughter oftentimes. And so when there are ellipses in our selection, I'm looking at Collected Letters Volume 3 online and uh, in, uh, in Apple Books, and I'm finding out if the context has anything to say. And if it does, if it's important, sometimes I'll, I'll slot it in. So if there's dot, dot, dots,
0: we got you covered. Well, we are half an hour in and we've done two letters, (laughs) so (laughs) let's push on. So we are now at the start of 1953 in January, and this third letter comes in the new year of 1953, and it made me chuckle because he speaks about first editions. As a book collector, Andrew, did you feel personally attacked by his words? Uh, No,
2: actually. I love that he didn't care about his first editions, which is why some of them, you know, Ended up in the Wade Center and elsewhere. Um, uh, Yeah, he he doesn't really care about his own books. In fact, when he sends Walter Hooper to his rooms in Cambridge after resigning in 1963, he gives him detailed instructions to what to do with every book in his library. And he said, as to my own books, apply them to your own interest or to the WPB, the Waste Paper Basket. And because Walter said, needless to say, nothing went into the WPB, went empty. Um, (laughs) A number of Lewis's books um, are in the. are in the the collection at the University of North Carolina or at the Wade Center, and then Walter had some that um, that I was able to see during during a visit. So, yeah, Lewis didn't care about first editions, but you know he could be wrong about things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're
0: going to remember not this his best book, right, Andrew? Right.
2: <laughs> 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 no, we said we it. said
0: we weren't going to do this this season. I I I, I repent. Um, Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, let's move on. We weren't going to do it much <laughs> uh, because a lot of these letters, especially this this week and next week, will
2: be within the context of Lewis writing far and away his best book.
1: But but David, please clip that so that way we can just oh, like oh, have well. this on command whenever whenever <laughs> Andrew appeals to Lewis as the authority, we'll just play that clip. But Lewis
2: isn't always right. <laughs> he isn't always right. And he was a man, he called himself hungry for rational, uh, rational opposition. And, um, you know, I wish that there were a little more rational opposition coming from math. but listeners <laughs> <Hey, laughs> also teasing and yeah, no, I think that, um, Lewis talked about uh, when one has read a book, there's nothing so nice as discussing with somebody else, even though it tends to produce rather fierce arguments. Mm -hmm. Lewis used to care very much about first editions when he was a teenager, but then the poverty of living with Mrs. Moore after World War I, Uh, he no longer had kind of spare discretionary pocket money to spend on nice editions. But if you read the letters to Arthur Greaves, um, they stand together it's full of talks of this edition and that edition. And I got this calf bound and it's beautiful and Moroccan leather and all of this. And so uh, he no longer cares about first editions, especially with his own books. That's part of it. Part of that is humility and part of that's just economizing. Mm. So people change. I like the first clip better.
0: Mm. Well, we still haven't managed to skip a single letter. So (laughs) (laughs) let's move to March of 1953. And there's just so much gold here because In this letter, Lewis talks a little bit about the book which we read last season, Out of the Silent Planet. And we find out that he's okay with the anglicizing of the plural of Eldil to Eldils, rather than the strictly correct Eldila. And we find out that the Eldila are very low in the angelic hierarchy, far below cherubim and seraphim. Lewis says that those orders are engaged wholly in contemplation. Of God, not with ruling the, of the lower creatures, which is what the Aldila are doing. And he does note that he's drawing very heavily from Ezekiel's visions in the Bible, his angelic visions. And he's doing his very best to dispel the images of—I I can only describe them as wussy angels. So, in the screw tape letters, he talks about <laughs> the fat babies. Um, in this letter, he talks about the feminine, and I don't—I don't think he means quite simply that angels are female. Basically. Angels say, fear not when they turn up, and it's usually because people see them and are afraid. And he actually points out in the following, it's a letter, but it's really a scrap, um, that the Hebrew cherub, I think that's how you pronounce it, has the same root as griffin. And those of you that know your mythology, the griffin is the legendary creature with the body, tail, and back legs of a lion, but the head, wings, and talons of an eagle. They look pretty terrifying.
2: Yeah. Uh, Lewis is fighting against the Pre-Raphaelite tradition that you know pictures. It's the angels that you see at Hobby Lobby, you know, the cute ones with their hands under their chin and their little. Um, uh, so he's he's fighting against that tradition.
0: I feel attacked right now. Why do you feel attacked? Do you think you're an angel? <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm, I'm literally thinking of these little um, beautiful angels I was given as a kid that fit that exact description that I love, like a guardian sure, angel thing sure. in my house.
2: They're
0: uh, they're they're very popular. David,
2: no one would describe me as an angel,
1: <laughs> but I appreciate you confusing that.
0: Hey hey hey, Satan was an angel. It's okay.
1: <laughs> wow, that was. Let's good, move David. on. That was good. I'm, in, I'm impressed. That was witty.
0: Um, well played. Well, it's 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 the standard pickup line. Yeah, it's like. Did it hurt? When? When you fell from heaven? The, oh, the biblically beautiful. literate woman will say, wait, are you calling me Satan? <laughs> oh, nice, nice. That's Absolutely. Good. The only other thing I'd mention about this letter is we, we were treated to the first mention of Lewis's own maladies. And we're gonna hear a lot about them over the coming letters as he consoles and commiserates with Mary, who also seems to be perpetually ill. Um, it seems that the two, to the two of them, they were, they were always sick with something. Yeah. There was a fair bit of sickness. In this letter as well, there's a
2: great mention of Lewis writes, the risen Lord excites terror, speaking of the terror that angels um, excite as well, only when mistaken for a ghost, i.e. when not recognized as risen. And that's exactly what happens to Susan. And he has just written that up. Susan thinks that the risen Aslan is actually a ghost and that's
0: when she's so afraid. So we'll, we'll you know not criticize Susan all that much this, this season. The hilarious thing is that in the next letter I was going to skip, and then Andrew came in <laughs> with 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 some gold from the unedited letters. Andrew, do you want to say mm-hmm. what you found? So this is the letter from yeah. the end of March, soon after.
2: So in the um in the dot dot dots, um down at the bottom of that page. So he says, um, uh, and wish you a very blessed Easter. It goes on to say, uh, this is what's missing in the published edition of Letters to American Lady. I expect Jeannie will grow up the most devoted granddaughter ever. Your silly son-in-law doesn't realize the charm of forbidden fruit. A grandmother one is forbidden to see rises almost into the status of a fairy godmother. Then he goes on to talk about the cherubs. So he's thinking about fairy godmothers and, um, and, uh, and, and chatting about that. With um uh, with Mary Willis too. What does he mean by a grandmother?
1: One is forbidden to see rises almost into the status.
2: Yeah. So when the when the grandmother is is forbidden when he's forbidden to, and I think that there's some family problems in the Shelburne household. Um. And when her grandchild is forbidden to see her, that makes her almost mysterious and mystical in the child's eyes. Uh, can't get to the grandmother. Can't see them. Almost like a fairy grandmother.
1: Gotcha. Just
2: just occasionally appears and grants wishes.
1: Kind of like a grandmother yeah, wants exactly. like, when a grandmother is forbidden. They see, I got you. That makes sense.
2: Yeah, sending lovely presents but never gets to see them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gracias.
0: Well, in April, on my wife's birthday, uh, in the in the, <laughs> the next letter, Mary she's asked for a picture of Lewis, and this I found rather funny because Lewis was notoriously bad at having his picture taken. Look through. Any of them, and he looks, he looks like a schoolboy that's sort of lost and confused and had a really bad day. You know, his tie is never, never pulled up correctly, his, his collar is always askew, he's, he's got the strangest looks on his face. But uh, Lewis says that he can't put his hands on a picture at the moment, but he says, Ask me again at a more favorable hour if you still have the fancy for this very undecorative object. And she actually <laughs> does end up getting a passport photo from him in his next letter. And incidentally, and David will send a, a, a link to that, um, the
2: Wade Center, David Downing recently posted uh, an interv- uh, a, a blog on the Wade Center blog, and it was an interview with one of Chad and Eva Walsh's daughters. And there was a never before seen fo- color photo of Lewis and Joy and David and Douglas with, um, with three of the um, the Walsh women. And Lewis is looking very stiff, but he's very nattily dressed in a blue pinstripe suit. So I'd never seen him looking so neat, but there's no smile and he's not even making eye contact with the camera.
0: So fascinating photo. And I think the very fact that he was slightly better dressed might have been that Joy was visiting.
2: Yes, and it was 1955. I think it was probably a staged photo, a planned photo. I think Chad probably took it. Unfortunately, one of his daughters is kind of pulling on her glasses and another of his daughters is behind Joy Davidman, so it's a terrible photo. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you know, Lewis is looking not looking at the camera. It's a lovely picture of Joy. And this is the s- August of 55 when I think that Lewis is already falling in love with Joy. It's after they write his book, Best Book Together. Um, and Chad and Eva have commented in interviews that Lewis seemed really excited about being in her presence then. So a decorative object for sure. And there it is. <laughs> there <laughs> nice it is. Nice
0: grab. I do have to point out a cork of a line uh, before we leave this letter. Lewis says, I'd sooner pray for God's mercy than his justice on my friends, my enemies, and myself. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get your reactions to what he says in the next letter, because what he says is even more true today. He says, I'm afraid it's certainly true in England that Christians are in the minority. But remember, the change from, say, 30 years ago consists largely in the fact that nominal Christianity has died out, so that only those who really believe now profess. The old conventional church-going of semi-believers or almost total unbelievers is a thing of the past. Whether the real thing is rarer than it was would be hard to say. What are your thoughts on that? You know, in my diocese, we've been talking about a book called The
2: Great Dechurching, and looking at different categories of people who used to go to church and now don't. And one huge category is people who would score very low on an orthodoxy scale, um, meaning they would probably agree with almost none of the Nicene Creed. And I think the winnowing of the church um, is a distinction between Christianity and Christendom. And now that it's only a third of Americans who go to church, Christianity is certainly in the minority and it belongs to those who really want it. And so um, while I would love more people to be in church, especially people who didn't necessarily believe so that church could draw them in, I think that if they give up a half-hearted practice of Christianity from you know perhaps uh, mixed motives, that may be a step in the right direction. And um, I think that the church uh, has, in America, has long um, enjoyed the appearance of being a majority faith. And I think being in the minority amongst the world values uh, in our society is probably a good thing to help refine the church. And it's certainly what has hap- what has happened throughout the century. So I don't necessarily object. What about
1: you, Matt? You know, I was torn. I could create an argument both ways. I think my gut leans towards it's better to, the right word is not weed that out because it looks at that group as a negative but the positive of the decline of the nominal is you start to the world that was never a part of it sees a more authentic christianity which is a great win um, from that perspective the group that was nominal you know to some degree if they're still showing up you have a maybe a little bit easier of a chance on the surface to to get to them because they're at least still hearing a sermon and so you have a chance to maybe change the heart With that said, I think I lean towards it's better that they're not because actually if they completely leave and try the world fully rather than this one foot in, one foot out, they might realize how wanting the world is. And then that actually creates Mm -hmm. a better chance like 10 years from now for them to come back, which I think is a journey you see a lot of people go on, leave in their 20s, post-college, come back in their 40s or 50s. Uh, And I think that's a typical arc that I've kind of witnessed. Um, So- yeah, I know that's not really giving a super definitive answer. I will say I've, I think probably net-net it feels like to me it is a net positive for the the mm-hmm. longer-term arc of the church. Even those people that have left as a chance to come back, it might actually be a good thing. Because, um, yeah, you 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 fully realize what it feels like to not be a part of it and then maybe want to come back later. I don't know. Those are just some thoughts. No,
0: I like it.
2: I think that any move that takes um, somebody closer to Christ Mm-hmm. Um, is a good move. And sometimes that move may be out of the church um, hey guys, for a time.
1: Nearness versus. Um...
0: Well done. <laughs> ah, you're welcome. <laughs> nearness, of a pew. nearness of approach. Nearness. Boom. Yes. Nearness of lightness. Still got Boom. very Well too much.
1: much. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Good.
2: He was paying attention.
0: <laughs> well, there's actually a related subject that gets picked up in the next letter, which is who's to blame? Uh, Lewis writes, Yes, we we're always told that the present widespread apostasy must be the fault of the clergy, not of the laity. If I were a parson, I should always try and dwell on the faults of the clergy. Being a layman, I think it more wholesome to concentrate on those of the laity. I am rather sick of the modern assumption that, for all events, we, the people, are never responsible. It is always our rulers, our ancestors, our parents, our education, or anybody but precious us. We are apparently perfect and blameless. Don't you believe it? And I think this is some very timely advice uh, for everything that's going on uh, in the church in, in modern years. There's always the tendency yep. to go and look at the, uh, the, uh, the professionals <laughs> and blame them for everything. But uh, I think the, yep. the best place to start is your sphere of influence. And the thing that you have most influence on is yourself. Hmm.
2: Well, and that's echoed in mere Christianity where he says people will say the church should give us a lead. Um, in some of the culture wars. But that doesn't mean the bishops should start writing novels. The bishops mm-hmm. and the clergy should be better clergy people and more Christian and the laity should do the same as well. So there's also at the end of this letter, a quick reference to um to Stephen Vincent Benet's Western Star. Um, uh, Benet was actually a friend and a correspondent. The Benet brothers were a frequent correspondent with Joy Davidman. And I think Western Star comes to Lewis through Joy Davidman's influence.
1: What I'll say too, I don't know who's... I'm not going to try to state who's to blame and who's not to blame. The one thing I will state with this is I feel like it comes down to my personal view is just catechesis education of what theology is whether that's the parents the lay people the clergy a combination of all of it like i just think from a catholic perspective when i bring friends to mass that don't understand the beauty of the sacrament it's like oh this is boring hymnal music this is boring ritualistic stuff this is boring sermon of the priest i'm just like one i don't actually agree that it's all boring but let's even just take that is If you understand the theology of receiving the Eucharist and receiving Christ, it's like, I really don't care about that stuff. I'm not saying it shouldn't be paid attention to, but it's like, if I'm just falling on the knees receiving my Lord and Savior, that's what matters. And I want it to be beautiful surrounding that. And so it's like, yeah, I just feel like it's a failure of theology, almost educating, catechizing. I don't know who that falls. That's probably everyone, to be honest. Um, But yeah, that's just my kind of view. It's only when I learned the beauty of the sacrament that I was like, wow want to do this
2: often well and i think in some ways the church itself may even take a slightly secondary role to our lord's commandment in the in 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 the sermon on the mount he said let your light so shine before men that mm. they see your good works and glorify your father in heaven mm. we should present a compelling we as christians and we as church members should prevent present such a uh, a compelling picture of Christ, that people will see that the goodness that we have, and they'll see that goodness and ask where that comes from. And so, we should create a hunger for what's going on. And as a church person, I want to do that as well. I want to Amen, make, um, make where I work um, compelling for visitors to come in and see, and uh, and 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 want to be transparent and, and reflect the work and, and life of Christ.
1: Amen to that.
0: Well. Once again, I was about to skip over a letter and so Andrew put a note (laughs) about it. (laughs) Andrew, what was it that you wanted to note about the letter from June, 1953?
2: Uh, It's just a great reference and I've thought about this often. Um, Well, just briefly, on June 16th, 1953, Lewis says, one of the things that makes it easier to believe in Providence is the fact that in all trains, hotels, restaurants, and other public places, I have only once seen a stranger reading a book of mine Though my friends encounter this phenomenon fairly off- often. Things really are very well arranged." And so <laughs> uh, there's that humble, uh, uh, humble side of Lewis. It also makes me uh, long for England because even today on the tube, you find loads of people reading books uh, out in public. And public reading is not nearly so prevalent a behavior in the States as it is in the UK. But uh, I think it was, and I, I could be wrong, I think it was either Out of the Silent Planet uh, or The Screwtape Letters. I think he refers to this elsewhere. Um, And so I think it's one of those two books from the early 40s or late 30s.
0: Mm. This passage actually reminds me of Cat Coffin. She's a Lewis scholar. She loves joy in particular. Uh, But on her Twitter feed, she'll regularly post books on the M train. And so she'll share the books that she's seeing other people reading and what she is reading. (laughs) Nice. Well, speaking of women, <laughs> well, speaking of women, uh, in the next letter, I've entitled the section Writes Like a Woman, because in <laughs> his letter of June 22nd, there's a fantastic line. I'm not clear as to the context. Maybe it was somebody reviewing Lewis's books that he's hearing about through Mary. I'm not sure. But anyway, he writes, did the reviewers mean Writes Like a Woman to be dispraise? Are the poems of Sappho or... If it comes to that, the Magnificat to be belittled on the same <laughs> ground.
2: And then there's also a reference. Uh, one is always told over here that America is a country where women are on top. But the real evidence I have, and I've had a good deal by now, suggests a degree of male tyranny that is quite unknown here. Now, this is June 22nd, 1953. I think that what he's referring to is uh, Joy talking about the tyranny of her relationship with Bill and Joy giving Lewis a perspective on what's going on in America. We know from her unpublished letters in 52 that she's telling him a great deal about what's happening in America. So this may be an, a reference to Joy and his interactions with her. She hasn't moved back to the UK yet, but I imagine they're still corresponding.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, speaking of strong women, the day before this letter was written was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, and it actually gets mentioned in the letter. Lewis didn't go, but he says, I approve of all that sort of thing immensely, and I was deeply moved by all I heard of it. But I'm not a man for crowds and best clothes. I do love the fact that he capitalizes (laughs) best clothes. Again, he's he's in many ways a schoolboy. That's that's the repeated image I get in my head when I imagine Lewis. Uh, and you can also tell that he lived in England because he adds, the weather was frightful. <laughs> but the the occasion of the coronation prompts him to speak about fairy tales. And he says to Mary, you and I who still enjoy fairy tales have less reason to wish actual childhood back. We have kept its pleasures and added some grown-up ones as well.
2: Hmm. And this is certainly a recurring theme. Um, this is uh, not long after he has written about reading fairy tales again in the preface to, um, to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe.
1: Well, in in connected to what you guys are just talking about,
2: like a month later, this was a letter
1: where he unpacks a little bit further. This jumped out to me. I just found this really beautiful because he, he expands on this concept a little bit. This is July 10th, 1953. He says, You know, over here, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it, was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, mm-hmm. a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, oh, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing, and this is the part particularly I want to stress, the pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself, humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate, as if he said, in my inexorable love, Inexorable. inexorable love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding." do you see what i mean one has missed a whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow if splendid a tragic splendor like i just love that from mm-hmm. the sake of thinking about our role i mean we are genuinely crowned as sons of god we're participating mm-hmm. in this divine life it's it's almost like that concept that i i fail miserably at this if you guys probably have learned over these years i tend to highlight things that i just fail miserably at that's why they jump out to me because they're not a part of my daily life like if You think about the Christian life as this deep spiritual battle that's going on, there's something really invigorating about that thought and empowering and strengthening that you're playing a role in it. Often we just go through life day to day not thinking about that. If you think about this coronation that's going on ours, uh and this like the splendor that we've received from the d- being partaking in the divine life, like that's just a beautiful thing. And I feel like this goes back to what Andrew, you mentioned earlier that we should. If we just radiated, the being we become is probably the best thing for Christianity. You were talking about that earlier when we're talking about the decline of the church. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we just understood what we're a part of, it would honestly, every day, if we thought about that, I would imagine it would just transform us. In the end, I just think about day-to-day stuff more often than not.
2: Yeah. You get a sense of that from Paralandra, where she is this kind of gracious queen Ruling the beast, and you also get it from um, what's her name from Gloucester Green,
0: Sarah Smith. That's Sarah Smith,
2: right? Golders Green, Um, Gloucester Green is the is the is the coach station in Oxford. Yeah, Sarah Smith and her role as by the way there's a misprint there's a typo in all the versions of um, letters to american lady it's vice regent not vice garant which means nothing um but (laughs) that we too are crowned to rule with him and yeah he captures this sense of it um i wonder what he would have made of the recent coronation and um i imagine he would have marveled that that was the the last coronation that that would be for so many decades
0: And before we leave that letter, it, it's clear from it that Mary had sent Lewis some poetry, and he offers a quick critique, pointing out its interesting metric composition. And i just like to point out, it's polite, but he also doesn't hold back. Where he thinks something can mm-hmm. be improved, he does say so. So moving on to the letter from the 1st of August, it actually very much reminds me of book four of Mere Christianity, where Lewis speaks about those who are filled with the Christ life. Because he says, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you gave me an account of the lovely priest. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, and perhaps like you, I've only met it only once, it is irresistible. And then he says this line. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? This Mm -hmm. is just
1: connected to what I was saying in the previous one. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Well, and it's
1: it's like what
2: some of the Jews will say, that if um, 10 men really lived a righteous life, uh, for one day, uh, the Messiah would come. Right. And so it's our call to be, you know, to be those lights that, um, that, that shine. So, yeah.
0: And this letter actually also contains the rather hilarious line Yes, I too think there is lots to be said for being no longer young. And I do most heartily agree that it is just as well to be past the age when one expects or desires to attract the other sex. <laughs> it's a funny line, particularly when you know what's going to happen in Lewis's life moving forward. <laughs> And what's already happened? I mean, I think that there's um,
2: there's some suggestion that uh, that Joy may have made a pass at him in late 1952, and she's writing poems even even during this year about um, uh, about the, her her attraction to Lewis. Um, I remember years ago, right after the letters had been deposited at the Wade Center, Don King was the first guy to go and sign them out, and I had gotten wind of these letters and poems. Um, from Joy Davidman, that turned out to be the Love Sonnets. And I was actually at the kilns um, during a conference. And it, it made me wish that I was at the Wade Center, but I got a hold of Don King and he said, Andrew, somebody lusted after C.S. Lewis. <laughs> 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 and so that's certainly,
0: um, uh, he's, I think, over, overplaying his hand here a little bit. Mm, quite possibly uh also this letter contains something which i'm pretty sure we're going to come back to at the end of the last battle because he speaks about people rushing on to a later stage in life and then trying to stay in that stage of life rather than letting life continue forward um i don't actually want to go too much into that because i think it'll become more relevant once we've got the context of the last battle to actually mm-hmm. talk about it but it is interesting that he notes that uh the motivation behind the encouragement of this is basically uh, sales resistance. Somebody wants to sell them something.
2: Yes, and that's a phrase that comes up in um, in mere Christianity um, as well. So, and right around this time, um, he also has this quick reference to standing and checking catalogs. Um, uh, I'm dead tired from standing at catalog shelves in a library all morning and verifying titles of books and editions. And because uh, the Oh comes out in 54, I'm pretty sure that that's what he's doing.
0: Mm-hmm. References for his Oxford history of English literature. Matt, you particularly highlighted the next letter.
1: Well, and also this uh, played a role in the toast that I did. It was just one of those where it was, it was very beautiful. I titled it Voluntary. Uh, suffering. So this was about a week later, he sent it, and it seems that Mary is having uh, to look for a job. And so he says, oh, I do sympathize with you. Jod hunting, even in youth, is a heartbreaking affair. And to have to go back to it now must be simply, I was going to say, simply hell. But no one who is engaged in prayer and humility as you are can be there. So I'd better say purgatory. And he goes on to say that perhaps it's even better than that because he says, we are told that even those tribulations which fall upon us by necessity, if embraced for Christ's sake, become as meritorious as voluntary sufferings. And every missed meal can be converted mm-hmm. into a fast if taken the right way. Mm-hmm. And So I love this because, I mean, it goes back to Father Mark Mary, the interview that I had. I think today we don't discuss enough the importance of Fasting, And I don't mean food fasting, I just mean sort of like voluntary sufferings. It could be fasting from anything. Of course, food is a way that it could be, but it can be certain types of pleasures and joys in life. And the funny part is we live in a society that science seems to back everything that the Christian faith has already known for a long time. I mean, the new whole big thing in secular health and fitness is fasting and the the benefit that it plays on brain and dopamine and energy and all this stuff. And it's like, oh man, it's like Christianity already had that kind of worked in there. Um, now, of course, mm-hmm. there's a spiritual component too,
2: but you know this this really speaks into my work um, as a as a parish priest because a lot of people are in the hospital and a lot of people die, and um, and there's a a fair fairly consistent drum of suffering that happens in people's lives, especially being part of a, a somewhat older congregation. But I've been thinking about suffering, and part of it is this attitude shift that Lewis that Lewis offers here. Um, and so I first read, the, read this 30 years ago, but it's still very present. Would I really avoid suffering? Do I really want to avoid walking the way that my Lord walked? And do I really want to avoid death? Because my Lord went that way, and if it was good enough for our Lord, is it not good enough for me? St. Paul Uh, St. Peter, St. John, you know, um, and Paul talks about um, uh, suffering being a gracious gift. God has graciously granted not only that you believe, but also that you suffer for him. And would I really avoid that? And could I not make my, my troublesome life Uh, More glorious and more holy, maybe. Maybe that's the secret of the holy. The people who take these untoward circumstances, these terrible things. I'm not saying let's go out and pursue suffering, you know, or say yippee for it. But as I have to face suffering, it can make me more like Christ because I get to walk on that same, you know, that same way of painful way that He walked. It's it's our own Via Dolorosa, and the germ of that idea comes right in this letter and has been haunting me ever since.
0: And that's why Catholics often say, offer it up. It's a quite a strange phrase, but this is what we, this is what we mean. And it's, mm-hmm. it's digging into the, the very provocative idea that St. Paul says in Colossians that I make up for what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ, which mm-hmm. when most Christians first read that, is like, wait, what? what was possibly lacking? And the only thing that's lacking is the participation of the body in the work of the head. And that's why Ignatius Mm of Antioch in the first century says, allow me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. He wants to conform himself Mm -hmm. to Christ in every way possible. And so that Mm -hmm. means taking the suffering um, as it comes and offering it to the father in a redemptive Mm -hmm. fashion like Christ. And all this is done through him, with him and in him.
2: Well said, David. And we are his body, and his body suffered. And so how, as his body, should I expect to avoid those
0: sufferings? Mm -hmm. In this letter, there's also a few words about independence, uh, the the state of being indebted to no one. And Lewis says that is eternally impossible. And he encourages her to lean on her daughter and son-in-law. And he says that supportive parents is the most ancient and universally acknowledged duty. But he does also admit that he often worries about money. And given Jesus' words about provision, you see the lilies in the field, he's actually rather ashamed of it.
2: He calls himself a very panicky person about money. And then interestingly, he says, poverty frightens me more than anything else except large spiders and the tops of cliffs. And of course, we see the tops of cliffs in the silver chair. And Tolkien is reading him. Um, bits about Shelob and Ungoliant, uh, the the large <laughs> spiders from from Tolkien's mythology around this time, and so uh, here's a here's a memory trace. Here's a here's the source of uh, some of those fears that appear in in his writing and the writing of his friend.
1: Well, there's something here too, David. I'm glad you brought that up. Of almost the hierarchy of, I'm thinking of two concepts here. Maybe like the hierarchy of sin, but then also his idea of action versus feeling. Like to some degree. He's actually doing something incredibly noble. He he panics about money. He worries about money. His actions didn't suggest it though, so he he acted differently than how he felt, which is very in accordance with what he teaches. So he practiced what he preached very much so. With that said, I'm wondering he I, I he mentions in I don't know if it was in this specific letter or a different one of how we we almost do need to offer up as a sin worry because it's like a lack of trust in Christ. Christ said, "Don't worry about tomorrow." And so I actually do find myself with priests bringing that up of of and trying to offer that up because anytime I stress and worry is literally just me not trusting in Christ's goodness that he has a plan or surrendering to it. So it's like there's something really beautiful about Lewis worrying and still acting a certain way, um, but then maybe acknowledging there's still something further he could develop is just not worry at all.
0: Yeah. The point about his actions is significant, particularly given that he gave away two-thirds of his income. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the passage that you're referring to is actually in the next letter, which actually comes a couple of months later, after Lewis has returned from a trip to Ireland. Uh, He speaks about how he prays for Mary daily, uh, but that he had felt a particular concern in the last couple of days, and he thought how good it would have been to have received a letter from her. And he explains Mm. how he believes the will of God worked into that. He says, and then as if by magic, indeed, it is the whitest magic in the world. The letter comes today, not lest I should indulge in folly that your relief had not in fact occurred before my prayer, but as if, if tenderness for my puny faith, God moved me to pray with a special earnestness just before he was going to give me the thing. How true that our prayers are really his prayers. He speaks to himself through us. And mm-hmm. he mentions this again in the next letter, that this is a scriptural idea. He says, our prayers are God talking to himself and refers to Romans 8 verses 26 to 27, which is where mm-hmm. Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that the Spirit teaches us how to pray in wordless groans. And he mm-hmm. who searches our hearts and knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God.
2: Yes. And our prayer is God praying through us back to God. And in fact, this is a crucial moment because uh, I've placed his conversion at between June 1st and June 9th of 1930. On June 10th, he sends a poem to to Owen Barfield about prayer. And he has been reluctant to pray before his conversion to theism. And um, it's a version of this poem, but it speaks of exactly this. He says, master, they say that when I seem to be in speech with you, Since you make no replies, it's all a dream, one talker aping two. So people watching me pray assume that I am kind of making up both parts, my part and God's part. But he says, they are half right, but not as they imagined. Rather, I seek in myself the things I mean to say, and lo, the wells are dry. Then seeing me empty, you, meaning God, you forsake the listener's role. And through my dead lips breathe, and into utterance wake the thoughts I never knew. Thus you neither need reply nor can. Thus while we seem two talking, thou art one forever, and I no dreamer but thy dream. And so our prayer is God praying through our willing lips back to him. Um, And we're dependent on him for everything. So... Yeah. And and these are some of the ideas that are all floating around for him at this point.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure when we do letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer, we're going to be talking about this sort of thing. The guys from the Less Known Lewis podcast have covered several of his essays on prayer. And you see see Mm -hmm. these ideas start to bleed through. Mm -hmm. But before we leave this letter, this is the passage that you were thinking of, Matt. Uh, he says, that anxiety is not only a pain which we must ask God to assuage, but also a weakness we must ask him to pardon, for he's told us to take no care for the morrow. The news that you've almost mm. been miraculously guarded from that sin and spared that pain, and hence the good hope that we shall all find the like mercy when bad times come, has strengthened me much. Mm. Hmm. And now we come to our last letter for today. We're running a little longer than normal. I think this will probably happen with these letters rather than trying to break up Letters to American Lady into too many episodes. I think we'll just have some slightly longer ones. Matt, this Mm -hmm. one you particularly liked, go for it.
1: Yeah, well, I thought it was, I don't know if I have a strong stance on the concept, but I thought it was uh, fitting given the season of when this is about to be released and maybe just a reminder for all of us as we enter into it, I I titled it Christmas Anxiety. So it was November 27th, Hmm. 1953. And so he tells us a bit of his thoughts on Christmas. Uh, And so he says, I feel exactly as you do about the horrid commercial racket they have made out of Christmas. I send no cards and (laughs) give no presents except to children. I thought something that was interesting was well, one, just the commercial side of things that was already going on back then and that that like bugged him. Uh, but I thought it was interesting, except to children. So what is it about, like, why is it okay to children versus adults? I was actually kind of curious your guys' thoughts on that. Like if you can give a gift to a child in a pure sense, why can't you do the same for an adult? Or is it just <laughs> that it's just become so pure of a thing? it seems like the thing that ends up corrupting the adults is that they were spoiled with presents as kids. And so it changed it. So ironically, the thing that he does ends up ruining it later in life uh, because of that.
0: Well, I'm actually going to be discussing Lewis's view on Christmas with Ruth Jackson on the CS Lewis podcast in a few weeks. (laughs) Uh, Lewis has a couple of wonderful essays on Christmas um he mm-hmm. and he calls it Xmas and he's got a little story that, that goes along <laughs> with one of them as well um but this was this was a big thing for him. He really just couldn't stand the commercialization and i, I think it's it's probably the difference between what's appropriate for children and what's for, what's appropriate for adults and particularly when it becomes a um a social compulsion or social responsibility that you have to send out Mm -hmm. all of these cards, you have to send out all of these presents. And all you're doing is you're creating lots of mutual obligations that nobody actually really wants to do, but we all go through the process of it regardless.
1: I Mm -hmm. fully agree with that. I, I do. I, I feel the same thing. You literally, you start to, with your family members, spend the same amount on each other. So you're pretty much just reciprocating gifts. And it's like, oh, they spend this much. I'll spend this much. I 100% agree. I just think the whole idea yeah. of you give it to children and somehow expect them to stop later in life. I'm like, well, maybe you should not do it to <laughs> children either. And you should like teach them the meaning of Christmas.
0: No, 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 no. Yeah. When, when, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And it's okay for something <laughs> to be okay in childhood that uh, you can uh, dispense with at least to a certain degree as an adult.
1: Yeah, I I would actually push back a little bit on that. It's like giving a kid junk food and then getting them to like grow. It just makes it harder. I'm not. You're right. It's well, not impossible. I but wouldn't like,
0: equate presents and junk food. They're both dopamine hits. <laughs> well, awesome. no, they're
1: they're both dopamine hits. I mean, I think is what you're kind of getting going is a dopamine hit of excitement around something. In the same way, food. Yes, it's not quite as repetitive, but I think there's something similar there. If it's just a toy of some sort for kids, it's purely dopamine.
2: Yeah. So, um, just Just put a Grinch hat on Matt. Thank Um, you. (laughs) I think that uh, I just want to be saintly in the Christmas season. Sure. No, I understand. Uh, Although I think that, and Lewis, I don't think talks much about Christmas in his autobiographies, but Mm -hmm. I imagine that it becomes, or it offers anyway, a kind of a rich, um, imaginative icon in some ways of the numinous of of fairy tales. And I just spoke for the Southern California C.S. Lewis Society just two days ago, last night, night before last, um, about the numinous and Father Christmas who's so big and so glad and so real. I think it's a potent symbol and a potent time for breeding magic and imagination and the right sort of magic and imagination. And so um, I don't think, and he, I think Lewis at this point has a fair number of goddaughters and godsons. And so I imagine that he gives some gifts, um, in letters to children, we'll find him giving money. And he said, it's very poor magic indeed, but it's the only kind Mm -hmm. that I have. Um, but he's willing to kind of participate in that magical world because I think, um, it, it can be such a fertile time for, for the imagination. So, um, but I, I certainly understand him not, um, not sending out Christmas cards and not sending out uh, not sending out presents. He used to beg his correspondents not to write him during Christmas and Easter because the mailbag would just flood.
0: Mm. So, and if Matt got his way and children weren't given presents at Christmas, then that would have mean Peter <laughs> wouldn't have had a sword to kill Mordred, Lucy wouldn't have had cordial to save Edmund, and Susan wouldn't have had her horn that could be used to draw the children back for further adventures.
2: Yes. Yes, Malgrom
0: did need did need <laughs> killing, and, and I'll let you yeah, have the last so. word there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I noticed, David, you cut my one thing of uh, I, I had a, a disagreement with C.S. Lewis because he developed this friendship with Mary. I mean, at this point, and he wrote a letter to her of like, "Sorry, I have to get through all of these, so it's just going to be a season of like not responding to her." And I think I I understand Lewis's worldview and but I I felt like he should, the word I put was prioritization. He essentially, he has this person that has continued to push into his life and he decided to kind of push her off for the sake of writing all of these other responses. And I kind of just felt like you could at least, I doubt there was hundreds of people that had developed a 10 year letter correspondence to him. And so it's kind of like, If I say yes to every human that wants to spend time with me, I'm saying no to my friends. My yes has become super weak. And so I felt like Lewis could have prioritized her a little bit more during his busy season of responding to these other strangers that send one letter, maybe two. Hang on, hang
0: on, hang on. Before we get even more forth, I didn't cut it. It's just, it's a letter from the following year. So I got moved Uh, to the next episode. That's making
1: that one. All right. Well, we could leave a cliffhanger here then.
0: Because <laughs> I
2: can uh, we'll, tell Andrew's we'll getting about, ready. <laughs> yeah, we'll find about that next time. I think that he considers a close enough friend that he can say, Hey, you know, do you, you know, I want to continue this correspondence. Can we continue it at a time where, you know, I can really devote the time to you that you deserve? So
1: Imagine me saying that to my actual friends. Sorry, I can't see you for a couple months. I'm really uh need to spend time with these lesser friends for a bit. But when I do come, I don't agree with that one actually either.
0: Well, the letter about Christmas was actually one where he uses the phrase, which Andrew likes to repeat, that he was dead tired, cab horse tired. So he was a man with an awful lot of responsibilities and uh, great busyness. Um, Before we wrap up, I did just want to add one line from this letter, because Lewis has some advice for insomniacs. And as someone that's suffered from insomnia, I love this. Do you find that the great secret, if one can do it, is not to care whether you sleep? Sleep is a jade who scorns her suitors, but woos her scorners. (laughs) He talks a fair
2: bit about sleep, and I think that's a great quote. There's another one in one of the biographies where he says, um, I never take naps, but sometimes, mind you, a nap takes me. Um, (laughs) And... I think even in the Narnia books, he talks about falling, as, trying to fall asleep, and how that's uh, a, a certain. It's either Narnia or, or maybe it's the king
0: God. in the last battle. He he has the ability to go to uh, go go take quick naps easily.
2: Oh yeah, and so does Bardia. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Bardia can fall instantly to sleep and then be instantly awake. Wow! In an, an advances, hour and twenty-five minutes, which have never and been first reference. <laughs> wow. <laughs> First, specific reference, of course, the spirit of it, the je ne sais quoi <laughs> of it, you know, the, the mise en place that um, pervades it. But I think he talks somewhere about not being able to fall asleep when you're trying to. And the best mm-hmm. thing to do is just not to try to fall asleep. Kind of like diving. So, But that's
1: another book yes. for another time. If you want to know that's what, that's what sleep experts say, if you spend 20 minutes trying to fall back asleep. If you can't, literally get out of bed so you don't train your brain to associate wakefulness with your bed. Just a little fun fact from the Huberman podcast. (laughs) Okay. Interesting.
0: Well, before we go, is there anything else you two would like to say?
1: I'm ready to start with shots fired next week with Andrew. (laughs) 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 I'll be happy to put you back in your place. It's, you know. If, I'm ready if, for if I'm ready party. for a fall in 2.0. I'm due for my nut again, a blind squirrel.
0: Well, <laughs> next episode we're going to begin discussing the letters from 1954 onwards and they can be found on yep. page 23 of my book and perhaps also on yours. But I hear the call for final yep. drinks. So, thanks to our sound engineers, Taylor and Sarah. Thanks to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top-tier supporters. Alex, James, Matt one and two, Erica, Joelle, Amanda, Thomas, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. We pray for our listeners and all the prayer requests on our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please invite a friend to read these letters with you and maybe gift a copy this Christmas to an American lady in your life.
1: Since this is near the end, so we're not stretching this, probably half of you have already left, but if you're still listening to this, since you just said the top tier Patreon supporters, I was at an event in Washington, D.C. and an individual came up and it was, I'm pretty sure she's a top tier supporter, but I think it's Amanda, I mean it was Amanda was her name, um, and came up and has been a supporter for years and told me it was just very impactful on her journey, so Hi, Amanda, if you're still somehow listening to this after. I imagine a lot of people cut off the second they hear thank you top tier supporters because it's just routine. But if you're still listening to us, it was a small world. It was really fun to to see her. And I'll see her again when I go to D.C. Probably she runs in the same circles as um, my girlfriend. And so I'll be able to talk to her a little bit further. But anyways, small
2: world. I've met Amanda. (laughs) <laughs> and I also met our, our listener, uh, Anne Caballero, from France who on, who has listened to every
0: single episode. So it was a joy to see her in Romania. Mm. Wonderful. Well, if you two have quite finished sabotaging my ending. <laughs> Listeners, please join us again next time. when We will continue going further up. And further in. Cheers.
2: Cheers. Cheers.